and welcome to the ILO's Global Business Network on Forced Labour podcast. We are the Global Business Network, bringing together businesses of all sizes and sectors and their representative organizations from around the globe to enforce labor. I am Mariska van der Linde, a consultant working with the network. This is our third podcast series, and it is intended as a training package for small and medium-sized businesses, or SMEs for short, who want to take action to prevent forced labor. We at the network believe that SMEs could be game changers and play a major role in reaching sustainable development target 8.7, which aims to eradicate forced labor by 2030. And this is because SMEs make up 90% of the private sector globally. Together with micro-enterprises and the self-employed, SMEs represent around 70% of global employment, which is huge. And in addition to their impressive reach and influence, SMEs are also often strongly rooted in their communities. These may be local communities or sourcing communities. And this means that they can reach where larger enterprises might struggle. Compared to larger enterprises, SMEs are also generally more agile and they're able to react quicker. Where SME owners are personally committed, SMEs can make a big difference in a relatively short space of time. They're quick movers. So this third podcast series aims to inspire SMEs to join the fight against forced labor. And our first episode is an introduction. What is forced labor and how can you spot it? In our second episode, we will hear from SMEs already taking action and they can inspire us. They will tell us about their successes and the obstacles they've had to overcome. And in our final and last episode, we will give you an overview of some of the best tools and resources available for SMEs on forced labor. Now back to our first episode. Today, we are speaking with the network's coordinator, Laura Green, who works very closely with ILO GBNFL members on eradicating forced labor. Laura, could you please tell us a bit about yourself and how you became involved in the fight against forced labor? Thanks, Mariska. I think the journey really started for me in South Africa, where I was completing my master's there, and I'd always been interested in the intersection between business and society. And subsequently, I had the opportunity to start working with the ILO. And from there, I became more and more familiar with these types of issues. And then I had an opportunity to work on a project with a different UN agency where we were engaged directly in visiting factories, understanding the situations of many workers, particularly migrant workers, um, and looking at how companies can play a role in improving the recruitment processes and ensuring workers have um, decent work. And this was, for me, a very quick learning curve to understand how uh, forced labor comes about, to see it in practice. And since then, I've been working on this issue very closely. Um, I joined the network in January of 2019, um, and it's been an opportunity to really have a deep dive into forced labor and to engage with committed companies and the representative organizations working on this topic. Laura, it's so great to see you are so passionate and also to hear about how you know about how to fight forced labor in theory, but also you've seen it in practice. Um, so glad to have you as a big expert here today. Getting down to business, if you'll forgive me the pun, um, how big is the problem we're facing? This is a, a timely question, Mariska. We've just had the new global estimates released. Um, these are the global estimates on modern slavery, which encompass forced labor and forced marriage. Um, but focusing on forced lab labor, we saw, see that there are 27.6 million people who are in situations of forced labor. And this is more than the population of Australia. Um, to also drive some of the, the 
other figures home, um, we have 3.3 million of the 27 million are children um, who are working as um, victims of forced labor or who are children in situations of forced labor. Some 17.3 million are victims of forced labor exploitation in the private sector. Um, so this doesn't include commercial sexual exploitation. So we know that this is very much an issue that the private sector encounters um, and uh, needs to take action on. The numbers are, are worrying because they're an, an increase um, from the, the last estimates, which were, were based on 2016 data. Um, it was estimated that there were approximately 25 million victims worldwide. Um, so this increase to 27.6 million is huge. We also know that um, that many of the, the the numbers that these estimates are based on that they are rooted in the in in pre-COVID or really at the beginning of the COVID nineteen crisis. So we these numbers are, are actually an underestimation. Um, we've seen that COVID nineteen has particularly worsened the root causes of forced labour, such as poverty, discrimination, weak governance, um, lack of access to social protection or social safety nets, and we actually think that the number of victims is probably in reality a lot higher. Uh, forced, legal, forced labor is, of course, um, illegal in most countries, and it can be be hard to estimate. It's often um, hiding, hiding in plain sight is, is what we use, um, and so it's it's difficult to get a real grasp on the on the numbers. Um, but we the the report itself is very interesting because it's given an additional breakdown, particularly for example around migrant workers, the number of women who are affected, the number of men and boys, etc., and would really encourage you to have a look at that to to get into the numbers. Thanks, Laura. That paints quite a depressing picture. Um, just going back to basics, when you say forced labor, what exactly do you mean? What, what does forced labor look like? In summary, forced labor is really something uh, when a person is forced to to work against their will. It's it's involuntary, um, but it's also done under a menace of penalty. So there's the existence of, of a threat. Um, we need to to be clear that this can affect any person. Um, it can be women, men, migrant workers, um, ir irrespective of their of their uh, legal status. Um, it affects any person. And then those two elements, the involuntariness of the work as well as the menace of penalty. Um, to give you an example, a menace of penalty, this could include, for example, physical abuse. Um, it could include a threat of deportation, withholding of wages, or threat of dismissal. Um, so these are, are, are very concrete things that, that keep the person in their, in their job, that they are not allowed to, it doesn't allow them to freely leave um, the employment. So all of these have to be understood from the perspective of the worker, from the person who's affected. Um, for example, to a child, the threats may be far more credible than they are to an adult. And so that has to be carefully evaluated. Um, we also know that in cases where there are religious and cultural beliefs that may be used to manipulate a particular person, um, that we need to understand that from their perspective, because again, they can be seen as more credible. When looking at the aspect of involuntariness, it implies that the worker is working without having given their consent, um, that it's not freely chosen employment, that they cannot withdraw this um, consent consent. They're not free to leave effectively. And this can range from children born into slavery, for example, um, or workers who are confined to their workplace through retention of documents. Uh, we see this in the case of migrant workers a lot with the retention of passports. Um, and again, it can look quite subtle. It may not be as obvious as we think. Um, 
The, in the case of debt bondage, a worker may have incurred a large debt um, with high interest rates, and this worker has agreed to pay off the debt, um, but the exploiter, for example, may increase the interest rate, um, manipulate the debt in a way in which the worker is never able to pay that off. They can never leave this particular situation. So in some cases, whole families might become trapped um, through generations of debt bondage. Um, so the issue looks very different in different scenarios too. Forced labor can also be imposed um, by different, different perpetrators. It might be a landowner, it might be a government. Um, you also see in the global estimates on forced labor that there are estimates on state-imposed forced labor there. Um, but through the network, we focus more on employers, but also on labor recruiters. So it's important to know that forced labor is referred to as, an, as a form of modern slavery, as we mentioned earlier, um, that this is the new report has, has been written under this umbrella. But modern slavery also encompasses other types of exploitation. So the ILO really has the mandate for forced labor and has a particular um, definition, which you can find in Convention 29. Um, and this means that it's it's the that forced labor covers all types of work, as we've mentioned, um, that spanning into the informal economy, where we actually see quite a, a high percentage of forced labor occurring. Um, also in illegal and illicit trade, for example. Um, and in certain countries, this might look like uh, begging or prostitution. This can also fall under the banner of forced labor. Um, it covers all persons, as we've mentioned, um, men, um, migrant workers, um, nationals of particular countries and children. So just to say no country and no person is immune. And where might a, where is an SME most likely to encounter forced labour? I mean, can you give any concrete examples of where forced labour occurs? So forced labour... It really happens all over the world, Mariska. We see this in uh, the report has highlighted, for example, that even high income countries and middle income countries are affected. It's not only a problem of the developing world. So let's highlight that to begin with. But we do see that there are regular reports in the media. So the average news reader will be increasingly exposed to this issue. There have been reports of forced labor of migrant workers in fishing vessels, for example. There have been those, um, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw in the in glove production uh, in Malaysia. We've seen in tomato production in Mexico. We've seen nail bars, car washes in the United Kingdom, on farms in the agricultural sector in Spain, um, in brick production in India. So it, it looks different in all these different scenarios, um, but forced labor affects many different sectors and many different um, countries and regions, um, irrespective of their, of their income levels too. So we know that a significant share of forced labor takes place in, in domestic economies, and we often might perceive this to be an issue that's related only to glo global supply chains, for example, but that's not uh, the case. It really occurs in the lower tiers of the supply chains um, and also in domestic economies too, and we need to be cognizant of that um, and to make sure that we're addressing that particular issue. Uh, Laura, earlier you said forced labor hides in plain sight. Um, which is an interesting way of putting it. And then if you think about it that way, it sounds like one of the first steps to fight forced labour is actually recognising it. So how can SMEs recognise forced labour? What, what are useful clues? 
Absolutely, Mariska. The first step is identification. And um, sometimes we say that perhaps if we see the, the, the numbers of forced labor decreasing, that there's been a success in eradication, but that might be that we're actually not identifying it. So identification is absolutely key. Um, SMEs need to know how to recognize the signs of forced labor in order to be able to do something about it. Um, they could spot red flags within their own operations and practices, or it might be that it's occurring in their communities or in their business partners and those that they work with, suppliers, recruitment agencies, manpower agencies, anyone that they're engaging with. Um, and if they know what forced labor is, then they and the companies they work with can put in place policies, procedures, um, and effectively take action to reduce the risk. After all, um, it's a, it's an issue of national law. It could be either criminal or labor law in, in, in most countries that are concerned um, with this issue. But there are also reputational risks associated with forced labor um, and that this is quite considerable for businesses. We also know that forced labor is ultimately just not good for business. So the ILO, one of I think one of the most useful publications that we have on forced labor is the 11 indicators. And these are effectively 11 red flags, 11 things to look for, um, which could indicate that a person is a victim of forced labor. It's not necessarily that one indicator leads to a finding of forced labor, but these, these act as clues, as red flags. So the first indicator is the abuse of vulnerability. And this indicates a situation where a person is exploiting someone else's vulnerability. And this could be not speaking the local language. Um, we see this in the case of migrant workers, for example. Um, it makes it more difficult for them to get information. It makes it more difficult for them to access help as well. Um, and it's easier for them to be exploited by those who are intending to, to deceive them. The second indicator is deception. And this is where a worker has been uh, promised certain things and this has not materialized. They've been deceived of the nature and the conditions of their job. Deception is an indicator that SMEs are well placed to, to spot, in particular when they're working um, with recruiters or through recruitment agencies and their um, intermediaries. So victims of forced labor are often recruited with promises of, of a decent, well-paid job. Um, I've seen, for example, a, a worker that was promised a job in a large capital city, and then they've ended up in a really rural village somewhere far um, from what they expected. So the reality becomes very different. Um, the conditions are not what has been agreed to. The actual, the type of work may be totally different to what they had, had agreed to, and similarly with the pay as well. So um, this, this is a, a, a situation of clear deception where in the case of a migrant worker, for example, in their country of origin, they've been promised certain conditions in a certain place, um, certain pay, and then they arrive in the country of destination and this is entirely different. Um, so this is a particularly a risk that we see coming up largely linked to recruitment. And then on restriction of movement, this is a third indicator um, and what it, it does is that it's a situation where workers are not allowed to leave the premises. Um, and this could be done through subtle means, but also through more specific and obvious means, bars on windows, guards, surveillance cameras. Um, and there, but there are also then other more subtle means where there's significant controls on, mo on movement. Um, workers are prevented from leaving the accommodation. Uh, there might be 
um, 24 hour security at their at their hostels, um, that they are controlled through transport to and from work, prevented from from using the toilet. Um, all of these are, are indicators that workers may not be able to 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 move freely effectively. Obviously, there are certain caveats with that in terms of occupational safety and health concerns, um, but this really is is linked to when a, a worker is not able to to exercise their their freedom of movement. Um, so linked to this, uh, victims of forced labor can also be very isolated. So it might be that they're in remote locations um, and that they've been deprived of of, of contact with the external world. Um, for example, if their mobile phone has been taken away. It's, it means that they're not able to contact family members, friends, any type of support system, or even alert authorities to things that they feel need to be addressed. It's a, it's a much easier way to, to control someone, to keep them isolated. And then looking at the, the fifth um, indicator, there is the victims of forced labor and their family members, or those that are closely associated with them, might be subject to physical or sexual violence. And this violence can include forcing workers to take drugs, um, which means that they can have greater control over them. Drugs are also include alcohol there. And for example, in a case of sexual exploitation or forced prostitution, forcing the victim to take drugs might make them more, more tractable. And there's some examples of SMEs in the hotel industry um, that have been taking action against this type of forced labor. Um, we've we've spoken about this in in, in other podcasts and, and briefs before. Um, and they're able to spot these these situations of the perpetrators using hotel rooms where they force victims um, to to prostitute themselves. And then there's also another type, another indicator, which looks at intimidation and threats. Um, when they complain or when they want to quit their job, um, in addition to, to physical violence, common threats against workers include the fact that they might be reported to the authorities. Um, this in the case of, of those who are working irregularly, for example, that they might lose wages, access to housing, access to land, um, family members of uh, theirs might be fired or even close friends. Um, and in recent years, we're seeing this indicator rising higher and higher. We've mentioned that this is uh, something that needs to be evaluated from, from the workers' perspective and it needs to be understood as to how they perceive this intimidation and, or threat. Okay, so I think I made that a total of six indicators, right? So just to summarize for our listeners, we have one, abuse of vulnerability, two, deception, three, restriction of movement, four, isolation, five, physical or sexual violence, and six, intimidation and threats. But there's a few more, right? Yes, we've got a few more to come, Mariska. That's a good summary. So six so far. And if my math is correct, that makes us 11 to go. <laughs> I mean, five, five to go. 11 in total, <laughs> 11 in total exactly. <laughs> See, maths was never my strong point. Um, a useful indicator for SMEs is retention of identity documents. Um, this is where an employer or recruiter takes away a worker's passport, their identity card, or any other personal documentation. Without these, the worker cannot travel, they might be deported um, in the case of migrant workers, and they might not have access to other public service services. And it also makes one just generally afraid and disinclined to look for help without this documentation. So when recruitment agencies um, 
when when you're working with recruitment agencies, this is something that is important to check throughout the recruitment process as well. It also happens, of course, during employment, um, but during the recruitment process that their documents may be retained as well. And then another useful one is looking at withholding of wages. Um, an employer might uh, promise wages and uh, well, a certain level of wages. They may withhold an, a portion of that or the whole whole amount. Um, and then they effectively refuse to pay the worker. Um, so the wages are uh, systematically and deliberately withheld, compelling the worker to keep working. So this prevents them from looking for other employment. And particularly when workers are, are in debt, um, they, they need the wages. Um, and this then really binds them um, to their employment situation. So another powerful indicator is debt bondage. Um, we already mentioned this earlier, and we know from the report, the global estimates, that one in five um, people in, situation, in a situation of forced labor is in debt bondage. Um, and debt bondage exists when workers or perhaps their families are forced to work for an employer to pay off those debts or um, the debts which they may have inherited. And debt bondage is often the reason why migrant workers become uh, victims. So, for example, we've done some work in, in Vietnam where we've been looking at the laws on recruitment fees and their related costs um, that workers can, that, pardon me, that recruiters can legally charge. So legally charge two workers. Um, and in the case of um, Vietnamese migrant workers, uh, a recruiter helps them to uh, obtain jobs abroad. And in some cases that they were lending workers money to pay upfront for these uh, fees and costs. Um, and the recruiter then may have deceived that person about um, the nature and the conditions of work, as we've mentioned earlier on the indicator of deception. But they also then may be manipulating that debt, um, uh, leading them to, to find themselves in a situation where they're not able to repay. So workers then arrive at their new place of work. Um, they are told that they cannot leave. They cannot refuse to work. Um, they need to earn this money. The debt is something that's really holding them um, to their employment. And this ultimately leads to a situation of forced labor. Victims of debt bondage, if they try to leave their employment, they're often caught. Um, they might be returned um, returned to the workplace. Um, unfortunately, we see, for example, in the case of the government of Vietnam, but also with other governments, um, that they're working closely with business to address this issue. So making changes to the law, um, those that came into effect in, in early 2022, um, have taken the country a bit closer to aligning with ILO's guidelines on fair recruitment, which ultimately says that the workers should not bear any recruitment fees or costs um, and there's more detail also in the breakdown of recruitment fees and costs in the ILO's guidelines. Um, another indicator we can look at is the abuse of working and living conditions. So here this means that victims of forced labor are working in, in in conditions and living in conditions um, that they would not otherwise have accepted. So this could include very cramped accommodation, humiliating or dirty conditions. Um, in terms of accommodation, we saw this coming up a lot in the news during the COVID-19 pandemic of uh, migrant workers confined to, to dormitories and the types of conditions that were present there. Um, and to give you another example, a Brazilian labor inspector once um, reported that workers were drinking contaminated water, um, as well as the fact that this is difficult um, and, and dangerous. Um, it is again an indicator of forced labor. 
So we've seen also, for example, in dormitories, in really cramped spaces, workers uh, sleeping side by side on, on the floor of what was intended to be um, a, a bedroom for for one or two people. Um, and you may have, have read the of forced labor and child labor and, and small-scale cobalt um, extraction in the media, where workers, including children, are exposed to the cobalt dust. Um, there's the risk of collapse and more. So this is really hazardous work. Um, so this is um, another example of this particular indicator. And while abusive and living working conditions are not necessarily um, a clear finding of forced labor, it again, it's a red flag. This is where we st should start looking for more information. The alarm bells start ringing. Um, and the example that I've just given in terms of the, um, the small scale cobalt extraction is also an example of how forced labor affects children. Um, we said the number of 3.3 million earlier. This is ex an example of how that comes about. Um, and finally, Mariska, we're reaching 11, I hope um, the last indicator is excessive overtime. So where a worker works more than is legally allowed according to the national law, where they're denied breaks, holidays, um, any kind of weekend, um, some sort of break in working time, um, this is a clear indicator that a person might be in a situation of forced labor. We also see that often that they need to work in excess of um, legal minimum working hours in order to, um, legal maximum working hours rather, in order to obtain minimum wage. Uh, so that's, that's also linked to, to excessive overtime there. So let me stop there. Thanks, Laura. That is great. And that is also a lot of information to digest. So let's summarize the 11 indicators. One, abuse of vulnerability. Two, deception. Three, restriction of movement. Four, isolation. Five, physical or sexual violence. Six, intimidation and threats. Seven, retention of identity documents. Eight, withholding of wages. Nine, debt bondage. Ten, abusive working and living conditions. And 11, excessive overtime. There's more information on the 11 indicators available on, on our website, um, and we will put the link in the show notes for this podcast episode, for those who want to learn a little bit more. Moving on to action now. So if there's an SME owner or employee who suspects a situation of forced labor, what should they do? Well, Mariska, that really deserves its own podcast. Um, but to summarize, an employee should always report um, his or her suspicions to management um, and they should be able to to take the case forward. Um, I think this is also where the, the role of grievance mechanisms can, can play an, a, an important um, role in the identification of forced labor. So... SMEs focus on their core operations and of course they're not forced labor experts, but they can reach out to others, their relevant authorities, the police, labor inspectorates, local NGOs, UN offices, the ILO um, in country, but also their national employer and business membership organizations um, or chambers of commerce. They can be key resources for SMEs. These organizations can help to ensure that their policies, operations, systems and procedures um, can successfully prevent forced labor. Laura, thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise with all of us. I have one final question because of course we mentioned that big SDG target, right? For 2030 to eradicate all forced labor by 2030. What are your hopes for the future? Do you think we can end forced labor by 2030? 
Thanks, Mariska, for the question. And it's been a pleasure to to speak to you today. I, I really do sincerely hope that we can eradicate forced labor by 2030. I think that so far the potential of SMEs and forced labor eradication has been overlooked um, and that they can make a big difference in these numbers that we've been citing earlier. The conversation around resp responsible business conduct has thus far largely involved large companies and the role of big business. Um, and it's made an impact and it's been really important, but it's limited. Um, again, you mentioned earlier that SMEs make up 90% of the private sector, so they can play uh, a key role. They can also play a, a complementary role to what's occurring in big businesses at the moment too. But they cannot do this alone, and we have to underscore that point. Um, this is not for an issue that companies can solve alone. We need governments to play their part, especially when it comes to putting in place and enforcing the right regulatory frameworks and also addressing the root causes. Without addressing the root causes, we cannot hope to eradicate forced labour. Um, so some forced labour results from the operations of criminal networks and, and SMEs are not likely to 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 reach here. Um, this is really the the job of the police. So, again, it takes more than one actor. I also think that if we can set up systems of fair recruitment, which av avoid um, the indicator of debt bondage, as we mentioned, that that will go a long way. Um, there are a lot of good examples of small and medium-sized enterprises doing good things on fair recruitment, um, and you'll hear more about these in our in our second podcast. Well, it sounds like you're quietly confident that if we all work together, we can make a big positive impact and shave off a large chunk of that awful 27.6 million figure. So let me end this podcast with a call to action. SMEs, please join us in the fight against forced labor. We need you. And please tune into our second episode because it features three SMEs that are taking on forced labor and child labor and making a difference. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast from the International Labour Organization's Global Business Network on Forced Labour. Visit our website on flbusiness.network for more information and look out for our next episode. <laughs>